Welcome to Minding Health, a podcast project by the Mental Health Advocates. We are a medical student initiative at the University of Alberta. Hey everyone, welcome back to Minding Health. I'm your host, Lucy. And I'm your other host, Kathleen. So for any first-time listeners out there, this is a student-led podcast project created by the Mental Health Advocates at the University of Alberta Medical School. We are a student initiative that provides a variety of seminars, workshops, and wellness nights for students here. We created this podcast to establish a story-sharing platform. This way, students and faculties can share their stories on medical school, wellness, and mental health. So today we're interviewing Brandy from the class of 2021, who is also a junior executive member of the Mental Health Advocates team. So welcome to the podcast, Brandy. Yeah, thanks for having me. So why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, I am a first year medical student at the U of A, as you said. And my background is that I've worked for the last about 14 years in nursing and also as a nurse practitioner. I've worked mostly in the ICU as well as in pain management and anesthesia. And outside of career and, um, and educational interests, I have two kiddos, a son that is eight and a little girl that is four who uh, fill all the rest of my time outside <laughs> of med. Nice. And can you tell us about your uh, career journey in the medical field? Um, I originally started as a registered nurse working in the ICU at the Royal Alexander Hospital in Edmonton. And not too long into that career, I was inspired by the nurse practitioners on our unit to want to go back and do my master's. So I went back and did that at the University of Alberta and uh, was able to then start working as a nurse practitioner. Initially, it was good to have a little break from ICU and I worked with... um, the acute pain service at the University of Alberta Hospital for about four years and got a lot of really great experience there. And then eventually returned back to ICU and was able to apply a lot of the things that I'd learned with anesthesia and work in my new role as a nurse practitioner there. And really after working for another five years as an NP, I just decided I would like to learn more about physiology and learn more about how to manage disease and um, maybe work in more of a clinic capacity. And so that was part of my decision for going back and wanting to go into medicine. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Um, It's really nice to hear about everyone's journey toward medical school and especially for people who came in with prior experience. Um, The other students can learn a lot from what you've learned before in the different hospital units. Uh, so we have heard that you are currently working on an interesting research project. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, on our unit in the ICU, we had historically done a fair amount of research looking at PTSD in patients in the ICU as well as in families. And really it was stemming off of that that we started to develop ideas around wanting to examine more PTSD and mental health issues in staff that are working in the ICU. So there was another nurse practitioner and a physician and I that got together and just started brainstorming different ideas around that. And once we got into the literature, we realized that PTSD is really a part of um, generally a larger complex of syndrome of different mental health issues. So in nursing, it's more of um, 
issues around moral distress and burnout and physicians for sure we see a lot more burnout and there's there's certainly a growing body of literature to support that so we decided to explore the relationships of those things with uh, physicians nurses and respiratory therapists on our unit that's definitely a really interesting area of research. I think both Lucy and I, through some of the meetings that we've had with you, have been really interested to find out um, more about the research. So uh, would you share with us and our listeners, um, what did you learn from this project? Well, we put together a very long survey, which our staff, uh, we had a really great response rate. We were, it seemed like the staff were all very interested in wanting to learn more about this as well. And one of the things that we learned was that we had a number of comments from people, even just by completing the survey, which looked at various aspects of exactly those things, moral distress, burnout, and PTSD. It was like a reflective process for the people that completed it. And um, they actually found that therapeutic just by completing the survey, which was a big surprise to Mm -hmm. us. We had two people in particular that came up to us and said, you know what, in doing this, I realized how burnt out I am. And they changed their approach to work. We had one person that ended up actually switching to a casual position because she recognized that she was not being at her best. And um, that was just very resonant for us to realize that this is a problem that is largely hidden, that is not talked about. And um, by us giving them that outlet, it actually generated a lot of conversation and was helpful to the people on the unit. It's really exciting to have something that kind of is in the works where the process itself is also serving a function in addition to the results that you're seeing, right? So, um, so like, could you share with us a bit about uh, kind of what are the results from the, the study that you've Our study, um, in looking at point prevalence rates of moral distress, burnout, and PTSD was fairly similar to a lot of the literature that's been published to date. Um, Generally, when we're looking at burnout rates in critical care, it's in and around that 20 to 30 percent. And we found a lot of our results were very similar to that as far as point prevalence. Our study was a little unique in trying to explore um, the interrelationships of those three syndromes and maybe not necessarily cause and effect, but just how things maybe interact a little bit together with that. And then my colleague had also made the brilliant suggestion of adding in things like um, work-life balance and satisfaction, Mm -hmm. and those interactions were also very interesting. The results themselves were very intuitive. It was just really neat to actually see it come out in the data. So for example, if somebody um, had a high burnout score on their tool, we also found that they were less satisfied with their work-life balance, Um, which, like I said, seems very obvious, but to actually have it come out in the numbers and to be supported by that was kind of cool as a researcher. Uh, it's nice that we are able to collect evidences through these surveys. Um, did you encounter any challenges uh, in conducting this research? The biggest challenge was really um, when you're working with zero budget, uh, of course, finding time to actually do it. It was a big undertaking for us. Um, just 
the physician really was overseeing our project. He'd give us a lot of direction, and then the groundwork was largely my colleague and I. And um, so to find the time to do it, to do it with very, very little budget, just kind of basically searching the couch cushions for coins <laughs> to try and uh, accomplish things like even just getting paper supplies for the survey and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And then the statistical analysis was very challenging uh, to try and either find someone to help us to do it, mm -hmm. which turned out to not work at all. And we just ended up running the analysis ourselves. But it yeah. was a very iterative process as we would run something and then realize that we'd forgotten to input you know, X, Y, and Z algorithm, and then we'd have to go back and run it all again. So it was, yeah. the statistics took us ages. So that was definitely the biggest challenge. Yeah, I can imagine, since you have five different surveying tools that you're using in this research. And everyone that we talked to, as far as, we talked with uh, one of the professors with the Faculty of Nursing, who's an expert in moral distress. Uh, when she read our paper, she says, you know, this is not one paper, this is like, three papers. So the, the thing that we did was, it was a huge, huge project. So did, we didn't realize at the time of doing it how big it was going to be. So I would recommend for anyone interested in doing this type of work to really try and a priori get some funding and some help, and or at least somebody that's really great at running these types of surveys. Those are very, very good advices for anyone out there interested in research. Yeah. We really admire your ambition in kind of getting this started and things like that. So I think uh, I'm excited to see how this will get the ball rolling and kind of people engaging with this topic. It was absolutely a labor of love. It was one of those things where we would, my colleague and I would just look at each other and uh, say, you know, what are we doing? But then we'd get back to it and it was just so interesting we couldn't stop. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. <laughs> Yeah, so in uh, the research, you mentioned the idea of moral distress. So for any new listeners out there, uh, can you explain what it means? Yeah, moral distress is a concept that historically has been talked about more so in um, social worker or um, more of those interpersonal sciences. Um, and it, basically a definition, if you want to get down to it, is around... Um, knowing what you want to do, but for some reason being unable to do it. So whether it is an administrative constraint or it's a dynamic between a nurse and a physician or um, dynamics between healthcare staff and the family. Mm. And a lot of these issues are very prevalent in the ICU and it just seems to be magnified in that environment. You have a lot of people that are very, very sick or maybe they're people that are no longer curative, but they've it's only a new thing for them to be at that point in their life. And so you have a lot of uh, differences of opinion. Mm -hmm. And so when someone, particularly in nursing it seems to be, um, ends up feeling that way, that they, they know that they want to do something or not do something, but they feel like they're, they have a lack of control mm -hmm. to do what, what their heart is telling them to do. It's not as prevalent in physicians, and that's reflected in the literature as well. And I think it's more a perception of control, that physicians typically are driving the bus as far as the direction mm -hmm. of the care for the patients. And there's a different dynamic as well between the physicians and the family, mm -hmm. where 
there's more of like a back and forth dialogue happening with them. Whereas nursing, there's a perceived lack of power from that standpoint where it's you're receiving the orders mm -hmm. and you're to carry it out and there's not as much of that dialogue back and forth. So, um, so I think you've touched on a little bit about this already, but um, uh, either in your experience or what you kind of see uh, around you in your previous work, uh, how does moral stress affect one's work and personal life? It can be something that is um, an incredible burden for um, staff that are working in these high-stress environments mm -hmm. to the point where if people have, are feeling moral distress over and over again, mm -hmm. uh, it leads to burnout. It's definitely a contributing factor to burnout, and that's been published as well. Um, but also, it is decreased satisfaction with your work. Um, it leads you to uh, maybe decrease how much you're working or to change your position or actually even just to get out of nursing altogether which when you think about the number, even just um, the cost of how much it takes to train a nurse, it just mm -hmm. from a pure numbers factor, it's a huge burden on the healthcare system. Um, and so there has to be ways that we start to actually address it. So I can think of an example uh, that we had on the unit uh, where we had a patient that was requiring prolonged dialysis and he was very very sick and it didn't seem like there was much hope for his case that he was going to ever recover function and get better and the nursing staff had a really hard time with this because they really felt that they were doing things like dialysis that were not in his best interest your job as a nurse is to be the patient's advocate and to really act in their best interest so this was very hard for them to do something that they didn't want to do that they knew in their hearts or that they believed in their hearts uh, was just against what what is best for the patient and it was after we reflected on this uh, that we had a really good conversation with the patient and his family and we really explored what he thought was appropriate for him and what he was willing to do at that stage of his illness and he was okay with dialysis so when we actually just stopped and took the time to have a discussion with nursing staff that, yes, the therapies that we're doing were hard, and yes, it was a very slim chance that he was ever going to recover, it was something that he wanted to continue to do. And very shortly after that, we saw all the rumblings of the backroom talk, the lunchroom talk, and that, that moral distress really just melted away. So when you stop and take the time and really get everybody on the same playing field and speaking the same thing and really understanding what the values are in the case, I think that a lot of that distress can really be relieved. I think that is an amazing message because it not only applied to nursing, it can also apply to as well as medical students and physicians. I think everyone out there needs to hear that. Communication is very important. Yeah, and just taking the time to have a conversation about it because I think it's when you sweep it under the rug or you leave it as the elephant in the room, it's just going to fester. <laughs> it needs an incision and drainage. You need to yeah. address it. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to put that. <laughs> yeah. So Lucy and I are just curious to, uh, about the fact that sometimes uh, things might not be able to be naturally resolved by communication. So in that situation, um, what are some ways to kind of cope with that uh, 
moral distress that people encounter? I think if you can really break it down and um, acknowledge the fact that it really is a difference of opinion and that you can all respectfully have different opinions. Um, there was a, a really great article that I read on moral distress that talked about that the title was I'm okay, you're not okay. And that really came down to say that when you have moral distress, it's because you think that what you believe is right and nothing else is right. That that other person or that patient or whoever it is that you're having a difference of opinion with, mm -hmm. um, that their answer is not the right answer. Mm -hmm. So I think if you can address that head on and just gently challenge that and say, okay, I understand that you're, you're having a hard time with this, that you're feeling like you're not doing something that is congruent with what your, your beliefs are. But just take a look at that and acknowledge that it is your beliefs and there's many, there's many answers to the question. And I think if people can just take that step back and say, okay, yeah, the reason I feel this way is because I was raised this way or um, I've had these experiences or all these things that contribute to ourself. <laughs> that is really the, the largest contributor to moral distress where it's like you, you just so firmly believe that something is right. But if you can take a little bit higher level picture of it um, and understand that there's other opinions, then I think that it can just help work through those and if you can't if you can't work through it then I mean I guess you're you just have to <laughs> move on in life either it affects you or it doesn't it's a conscious decision to let it affect you mm -hmm. I think in many situations people think moral distress is a one man's battle what are some people that pe uh, students can reach out to if they are in a situation of moral distress um if there are people in, if you're a student, um, then certainly a supervisor should be able to help you work through this because your staff physicians or even the nurses or whoever it is that you feel like comfortable and secure talking to, they have a lot of experience. And chances are they've had those feelings before. And so it might just be um, a matter of having a conversation around, you know what, we're doing these procedures or we're poking this patient for lab work and I just don't feel right about it. But just talking with somebody about it, they can validate what you're feeling and also maybe offer that other perspective of, you know what, this is actually acceptable for the patient. So um, you're, we're doing still things that are congruent with what the wishes are of the patient and their family. So in your research, um, you've looked at the different factors that can contribute to PTSD. And I wonder if you can talk about that and workplace exposure versus personal PTSD exposure can affect a person's overall wellness. Yeah, the PTSD part of our research was really interesting. And we actually chose to um, have that as one of the more central pieces of uh, our manuscript, which is a work in progress because it was something fairly unique. There's been a lot published of late on moral distress and burnout in critical care specifically, and there's a bit of a paucity of papers published on PTSD. So when we approached PTSD, uh, we had a list of 
lifetime trauma events, so things like car accidents or being severely ill, those sorts of things. And then we added in our own question about work-related trauma, because we really wanted to tease out whether the symptoms that someone may describe that fit with PTSD were related to a trauma from work, or was it a trauma from before work? Um, so we, um, we found the vast majority of the people that reported PTSD symptoms, it was from a lifetime trauma as opposed to a work trauma, um, which was somewhat surprising to us. We thought that maybe some people would say, oh, my job gave me PTSD, but really the people with the symptoms, it was a pre-existing PTSD. What I personally found interesting was on our unit, in our survey, we definitely had a higher prevalence of PTSD compared to the general population which, you know, you have to be careful interpreting anything, but if you really thought about it, the way we interpreted it was people who have um, experienced trauma in their lives are maybe drawn to being healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. So you have this almost a calling. Maybe it's something that they're trying to heal their own trauma or they just have a feel a need to try and help people that we found more people with those symptoms ended up in healthcare. Perhaps a drawing to a profession in critical care can be a way for them to heal their own struggles from before. Yeah, it's like almost you end up having repeated exposures to trauma and um, whether, you know, whether that can end up being um, a coping mechanism or not, I guess you'd have to do some more qualitative type piece to this. Um, we, d we did find that those that reported having a diagnosis of PTSD that met the criteria of, of PTSD did perceive more workplace events as traumatic, which was also interesting for us that, you know, if you're almost primed to, to see the things that um, you're doing daily at work as traumatic, but also whether or not that actually impacts their function would be um, an entire another study. Yeah, it's up to more research. Yes. Someone with a budget. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, another thing that we're really curious about is that as uh, future healthcare workers, uh, as trainees, um, is there any recommendations that you can make based on what you've learned throughout your research uh, regarding how to manage uh, burnout? Burnout is a huge thing, and I think that we're only going to hear more and more about it as we go on throughout our careers. Um, it's it's interesting because I I almost have burnout from reading about burnout. Like there's just <laughs> there's so much that's being published, and it's in every population at every point of um, our careers, whether we're students, residents, um, working as physicians. There's there's a ton in every career. Um, it historically started outside of healthcare. It was actually um, in non-healthcare related fields that they initially looked at it and then it, the tools have been adapted for healthcare but it's such a prevalent thing just in society in general and what they've found in healthcare is um, that you've got a number of contributing factors to it there's personal predisposition some people um, are definitely just more 
attention to detail or if you want to call them high strung or maybe a little less resilient to adapting to um, all of the stressors and all the stimulus that we end up encountering in, in these positions. Um, there's organizational factors like um, your work-life balance, your schedule, do you have to work 21 days straight, are you working 24-hour shifts, those sorts of things that all contribute to burnout. And um, then other concomitant things like moral distress and PTSD have all been linked to contributing to burnout as well. So as far as things that we can do, if you do a little bit of self-reflection, be aware of the fact that you're maybe feeling emotionally exhausted, that you're distancing yourself from your patients or from your colleagues, and that you maybe aren't taking as much joy in the work that you're doing. Through that self-reflection, you can then hopefully preemptively do things like manage your stress through whatever avenue that might be. Maybe it's going for a run, maybe it's painting, maybe it's binging on Netflix, whatever it is that <laughs> you find uh, works for you to do your own stress reduction, then you're taking control of it from that point of view. And then additionally, it's going back to trying to address those environmental factors. So maybe it's that you need to speak to um, your supervisors, or if you're a nurse, that you're speaking to your managers, or whoever it is that you need to um, help contribute changing to more of the organizational level things. So letting them know, hey, I'm burnt out. These are the reasons why. And maybe it's something as simple as um, reducing your point position, or um, even just having your manager acknowledge the fact that this is important and they care about your well-being, um, giving you more control over your scheduling, encouraging you to actually take days off, mm -hmm. which can be a major issue both for physicians and for nurses, and um, just even offering either peer support groups or reinforcing the fact that we have access to different counseling and uh, employee assistance type things. Um, so all those things can just help reduce um, the amount of stress and hopefully reduce the amount of burnout that you, you're going through. I love how a lot of the interventions that you've uh, mentioned has a lot to do with changing the culture and how um, people perceive mental health as a need and uh, and in this case a very necessary one to be on the forefront of our minds so uh, uh, we have this podcast I think that's a very important message that we want to bring to people so thank you for for sharing that with us yeah no problem yeah thank you so much Brandy and that's a wrap for today's podcast